Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a production of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University, where the world's hardest problems meet faith's deepest values. What you're listening to today is part three of a conversation in three parts. David and I have been discussing the American Academy of Religion, what it means to be an evangelical, the state of the tradition, and today we'll be talking about his presidential address from 2018 AAR conference in Colorado, where he discussed the effects of systemic racism on the white evangelical tradition. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation so far, and we're just going to jump right back in. So get ready. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics. It, was, it wasn't fun to read it. It might have been... So I read the whole thing. Yeah, I'd seen most of it before. I, this is the first uh, from two days ago. I've seen it finished. Mm-hmm. I had an earlier draft. Um, it might be less painful to have listened to it than to have to read it in my voice and listen to me convict myself that was not a pleasant experience and and the paper is scathing um the subtitle so in the ruins of white evangelicalism interpreting a compromised white christian tradition through the lens of african-american literature ow um why why this paper, and why did you do it now? Of all the things that you could have done as the president, and something that, if you haven't listened to the uh, the address yet, or you, you don't have a hard copy in hand like I do, something you won't know about it, is that a lot of the work, how much of this isn't your words? How much of this is block quote? Maybe um, a third? About a third at least, yeah. That is a huge sacrifice to make in a moment when you can force everyone to listen to your voice a third of it isn't uh i didn't want it to mainly be my voice uh i i wanted to do what i what i believe i should have been doing all along centering the voices of african-american characters in these novels that i and then later, in the kind of the climactic move in the speech, not just novelists, but also public intellectuals, Frederick Douglass and James mm-hmm. Cone and uh, so on, J- um, Ida B. Wells, W.E.B. Du Bois. So essentially, the, the speech at one level is a confession. And the confession is that my engagement with white racism has has been superficial and that the election of donald trump after he ran in my view an explicitly racist campaign and much of his public commentary before he ran for president was tinged with racism the election of donald trump and the strong support of donald trump even today by 70 percent or more of white evangelicals in the u.s created um, a a crisis of credibility for uh, white evangelicalism in the U.S. It creates a crisis that is still there very powerfully. Now, I was able to say, 
I was already exiting or had exited the evangelical community before he became president. Mm -hmm. And that had to do largely with my LGBT inclusion posture, which propelled me out of the community, um, uh, (laughs) one might say. (laughs) Propelled like a slingshot, (laughs) a cannon, a trebuchet. (laughs) Or perhaps a manned space mission. Anyway, right off of Cape Canaveral. They put you on. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> so anyway, but, but still, I, I, you know, I, I acknowledge in the speech that nine-tenths of my professional career and most of my life has been spent in the evangelical community, and so I own this, right? And, and so it just dawned on doofus me about 2016 fall that, that, uh, evangelicalism appears to be more compromised by racism than I had imagined. And so, and this was actually a line that was cut out of the final draft, but that evangel- white evangelicalism does not have the resources in itself to diagnose itself. There's, oh no, I'll, I'll fix this in post. I'll find his name again. There's a young scholar I think he came out of Union, who has just moved to Atlanta. Um, he's not teaching anywhere. He's a pastor. But his his big claim that he's working on is that the white church can't come to grips with this. It can't confess it because it doesn't have the pastoral care bandwidth to handle it. Oh. That the trauma, that we know the trauma would be too big. Hmm. And so we keep... We keep it at a distance because if we actually faced it, we couldn't survive it. It is it is um, traumatizing to emerge from the the cocoon of our own willful ignorance and face all of this. Um, so anyway, so I say so I, I was quite clear by the fall of 2016 that the tools that white evangelicals would use or do try to use to diagnose the health of our own community um, were not adequate. That, you know, we do more theological declarations and do more Bible mm-hmm. studies and, and read yet another sermon from Rick Warren or somebody and, and that we are bereft. We can't understand what is wrong with us here because, I concluded, we have not listened outside of our little box outside of our community and um, with my confidence in white evangelicalism now completely shattered I said all I want to do right now for about the next two years is read scholars and public intellectuals and then novelists the novelists transfixed me of, of color mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about that for a second because the yeah. prep that went into this this document is about probably a solid year of work towards this one yeah. 13 page dress. Um, and I read 12 books for you in that period, mm-hmm. in the, the last bit of the preparation. And the reading I did was all factual and technical and historical mm-hmm. and theoretical. It was. Um, how is the law 
in the United States bent towards whiteness? How has the housing market developed? How has politics developed? What is the what is a clear picture from uh, black scholars about the history of blackness in America? What does that look like? So I read all of those books, and you read a ton of novels. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to know what. How did it go that way? Why? <laughs> why did why I do all that research? The fun stuff. <laughs> and um, why fiction? When we're talking about something that's so visceral and so real and has such an astounding contemporary body count, yeah. why fiction? Um, well, and, and again, I didn't say this as thoroughly in the final draft, but what I thought I was going to do was... Um, mainly what I, I asked you to do at first was the historical work. Um, but I think it was it was reading womanists like um, Emily Towns and Stacey Floyd Thomas and then the back to Katie Geneva Cannon, the kind of the creator of womanist ethics and theology. Well, actually, they all claim derivation and inspiration from Alice Walker first. Um, but they all, they put me in the direction of the novels. Um, Katie Cannon in her dissertation, which became black womanist ethics uses Zora Neale Hurston as uh, a primary theological source. Um, and that was the first time that had been done. And I, I, because she did that, I, I read some Zora Neale Hurston. I read Their Eyes Were Watching God. And I was uh, bowled over. And then and then I said, okay, well, let's go, let's go further. And then uh, who else is being read? Okay, Toni Morrison, beloved. And so then I went there. And and then Alice Walker, Color Purple. Mm-hmm. And and then I was in. I was in it. And then but it's not only a woman novelist. And so then I turned to uh, James Baldwin, who um, has become a centerpiece of my research now. In fact, your audience will be the first to know, our audience, that I'm doing a whole course on Baldwin this spring. Wow. Yeah. Um, and we're going to read about... Where is that? And how do they sign uh, up? It's at McAfee School of Theology here in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's a seminar course of about 2,000 pages of reading. Dean, I'll send you a bill. <laughs> Um, so we're reading Baldwin and so I read go tell it on the mountain. We actually, we had read that Jeannie and I have a book club and we read that in book club and it was, um, that was, that was in there kind of a little further back, but, but so that kind of got grafted into this project. And then I read Ralph Ellison, invisible man and, um, uh, Richard Wright's native son. And, and, and all of a sudden, all I wanted to do was read the novels. And then I, and, and reading the womanist ethics, uh, what, what, people like Cannon and Emily Towns and Stacey Floyd Thomas were saying about these novels is they tell the truth of African-American experience in a way that is, uh, it's not art for art's sake. It's not fanciful. It is, it is more like reportage. It's more like reporting, but because it's, it's in, I don't know, novels can open the way to empathy and imagination in a way that a lot of times regular prose or in historical writing does not do. And um, 
And so also because any 5,500 word speech has its limits, I decided I would stick with the novels. And so I ended up quoting from, I ended up being about a dozen novels in the, in the address. And, um, and I can say that reading, I've now read about, about 20 of them. Reading these novels taught me more that I, that I could internalize that could change me more about what white racism is and has been and about what it has been like to be African-American in this country than anything all put together that I had ever read. And so I ended up saying in the address, kind of in passing, everybody should read these novels. And I would say it would be appropriate if we really cared about racial healing in this country, it would be appropriate for all serious high schools and colleges to require some combination of these books. Put it there with English and it's just as part of the curriculum. Yep. Canterbury Tales and Their Eyes Were Watching God. That's right. They they should be required, not options. And um, I've I've talked to many people who, especially who grew up around here, grew up in the South, to say what a fight that would be if that were even to be proposed. So people would lose their minds. Uh-huh. Yep. In predominantly white school districts. We don't we don't want to hear these stories. So the novels, I let the novels and their characters speak. And then I just tried to say, I asked the I asked the novelist, tell me, novelist, what do you see when you see white Christian people? What do you see? And then I organized the themes as moral debasement religious powerlessness and perceptual blindness that racism debases the racist martin luther king used to say that and it's true mm-hmm. and i gave this six is not just work for us we need to do this for them right right that and i i gave six categories of moral debasement and examples of each and then religious powerlessness this is of course of most interest to religion scholars that racism um, is so powerful, has been so powerful that it makes whatever the resources of Christian faith are supposed to offer, uh, it neuters them. Um, Jesus may teach all kinds of things, but the racism is more powerful. Um, and then uh, perceptual blindness, and this, by the way, this then shows up in every book that is, it seems like that is written by a black scholar or public intellectual about white people the amazing learned capacity to not notice the obvious. Mm-hmm. So moral debasement. So you must say, so what I, methodologically then, I, I read these novels, lots and lots of thousands of pages of novels, and distilled these themes from the novels and kind of offered a bit of analysis of each of those three themes. And to say that this moral debasement, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness is alive and well today. And it helps to explain where we are as a country. And it helps to explain how we got this president. And it helps to explain what has gone wrong with white Christianity in America. And so it's not all of the explanation, but I think it's part of it. And I'll tell you what, the response to the speech blew me away. It was basically... 
um, tell us more and please share your sources with us. And, and what I'm hearing, grateful, I'm so grateful. What I'm hearing from African-American scholars is thank you for taking these novels seriously. Thank you for taking what we've been saying seriously and for centering it. Thank you for not like claiming it as if it's your ideas. You discovered. I discovered. It's actually quite racist out there. Yes. Good job, Gushy. Um, but there hasn't been cynicism about it. There's been appreciation, you know. And um, there's there's this there's this weird paradox. Like the modern academy makes space for, partly because of the demanding work of scholars of color, makes space for it. Like so, there's African American studies, and there's like Latino or Latinx studies, and there's Asian American studies, and so on. But a lot of times those studies themselves are ghettoized. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, it can feel like, okay, we know you want your little department, so here it is. Mm -hmm. You just do your thing over there, and we'll keep doing our thing over here. Ghettoized is an excellent word. You go to a, a conference, and it's normally like, yes, there is a womanist studies luncheon it happens at three o'clock on a tuesday off-site oh you're interested in latinx ethics well that will be uh hosted at a church in a suburb of the city where this is hosted at 8 p.m on the closing day of the event um and these spaces become homogenous I thought that was one of the most exciting things about the Society of Christian Ethics conference this past go-round was those voices being brought to the front and the center in plenary conversations. But then when you and I go to these spaces, there's also some risk involved. If you're a white scholar engaging in this literature, the danger is the fear of like appropriation. I'm now going to take this, gobble it up, colonize it and bring it mm -hmm. like and now it's mine that's not at all what i'm trying to do and no uh, appears that people understood that um but but to to do to to center that literature as pivotal for christian ethics and theology in the in this moment that this is not auxiliary literature this is central literature this has become my research agenda um Hopefully, hopefully I can be seen as an ally and um, as an advocate for the centrality of the scholarship and of the people who are doing it. What I wasn't able to do as much as I wanted in the address is it's not just now that we have these like these novels, but we also have a, a great body of secondary literature about these novels. So if I had another 5,000 words, then, you know, you know, I would have done more with black theology and with womanist theology and ethics and and kind of what is being done, you know. Um, but at least I exposed the primary sources and said, these are pivotal. Everybody needs to read these. And these reveal these things, which, by the way, are also stated in all of this great theology and ethics mm -hmm. that is being done by our colleagues. And no responsible Christian theology and ethics can be done today that marginalizes that material and it reads that way too it doesn't sound like hey look what i found it's more like guys look what we missed yeah there's a line in the address where you said something like i sat at the feet 
of black scholars not to appropriate their words or to appear woke. <laughs> there is nothing that I find more aggravating in our culture right now than the phenomenon of virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. I was at a party not too long ago, and I'll be super vague in case they listen. I was out with some friends not too long ago, and I left really early because they were driving me absolutely insane. Here, let's let's do an example. I'll show you what I'm talking about. David, make a completely bane observation about anything. Uh, the fan is gray. Really? Really, David? Gray? In 2018, you're going to make an observation about that fan's color in 2018. Person number two jumps in. Whoa, I find it really problematic that you think that gray is a derogatory term. Gray is a valid expression of being a fan in our culture today. Person number three, it's actually really problematic that you think that fan is an appropriate term to describe appliances that move air. And it would spiral like this around and around. It would escalate. And I see this all the time at parties, at bars, on social media, in church, everywhere. That sounds terrible, Jeremy. It would spiral <laughs> into, like, out utter outrage as people fight to prove how woke they are, how virtuous and progressive they are. And so I'm wondering, how do we have these bold conversations? H how do we intellectually ally without virtue signaling. Um, because let me tell you, I get attacked, I get eviscerated on social media nine times out of ten when I try to leverage my voice, whatever that means, in different places. Um, as a person, as a member of the community, as a pastor, I try to leverage my voice in those spaces as an ally and I will get shredded not by my opposition but by the people who you would think were on my team for whatever my error is in my argument or my statement or my action as an ally they'll go after me instead of the argument instead of the topic of discussion, they will use me as a way to signal their virtue, to show how next level they are in their wokeness. And this horizontal violence makes me think like, well, fine, I just, I won't step in the next time. And of, of course I do. But it makes a lot of people not want to be an active ally. Um... I was afraid that that's how this would go for me. Um, of course, all the verdicts are not in yet, and the document has not been printed. And so, um, yeah, it is scheduled to appear in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion as soon as 
I mean, as soon as I can get them a final version, they'll have it out within three to six months. So, and then the, the, um, YouTube AAR video, they hope to have it out by January. So, and we'll share that for our listeners. Yeah. Um, so I think that somehow so far that has, that is not happening to me. I, I've seen it happen. Um, but the kind of, um, feeding frenzy on the left, when somebody is attacked for not doing or saying or, or whatever, exactly not right, going far enough not going far something. enough or, 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 uh, whatever it, it really does happen. It's, and, um, it, it's exhausting and it is uh, demoralizing when it happens. Um, it's something that, um, is especially experienced as a difficulty for white straight men who are kind of um, suspect in that space from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know that there's a, a specific guide through that, but anyway, I, I think if you believe in something or you want to highlight a concern or you want to indicate what you care about, you just have to keep doing it. Um, social media is a shark tank and, and, you know, sometimes it won't go well, but here's a story about tear gassing on the border. If you're concerned about that and you want it to stop, then you, you flag it and you, it, you know, you just, whether people like it or not, as long as, with integrity, you're attempting to communicate your concern and you're doing something about it besides, besides putting something up on Twitter, you're, you know, you're writing a letter to your congressperson saying, please, this has got to stop or whatever. Um, so I had friends say to me, well, your speech was very well received and your trajectory is being noticed and it's, it's appreciated. But now the watching will get even more intense because people want to know that if this is about a kind of a conversion, that you're really converted, that you're not just playing. Mm-hmm. You didn't just want to give a good speech. Yeah. And um, I have some initiatives coming that people will be hearing about soon that reflect these commitments for me. And um, one of the things I, the way I concluded this speech was to say, um, basically there can be no more, for me at least, theology or ethics written that is not um, done in partnership with and in deep interracial community. No more white ghettos. And, um, obliviousness no more mm-hmm. no more obliviousness and the work that is coming uh, i can say one thing because it's it's uh it's somewhat known but um i'm co-editing a book with reggie williams of mccormick seminary that brings together a richly diverse interracial in intersectional group of scholars to examine uh the the work of my teacher glenn stassen um 
on a theme that he called incarnational discipleship. So we're doing a symposium and it will be rich. And the book will be co-edited with Reggie, who's an African-American scholar. And you should read Dr. Williams. He is spectacular. He is a great thinker. His book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus, has changed the trajectory of Bonhoeffer studies. So, and I have another major partnership brewing that I'll be able to announce maybe on this podcast uh, in January. So, um, so yeah, working in partnership. Also, elevating the voices of other people. Um, one of the things that I, I understand a little more clearly now is and this is relevant to scholars, especially, there's a sense of scarcity, um, especially for those just starting off in academia, scarcity of jobs. There's nowhere to go. Right? Scarcity of jobs and scarcity, the perceived scarcity of publishing opportunities. And so it can seem like a zero-sum game if I get a contract scholar B doesn't. Certainly, if I get a job at a school, mm -hmm. everybody else who doesn't have a job didn't get that job, right? That's that's an acute crisis, actually, in higher education right now. And so I am doing everything I can to leverage that whatever influence I have to give people opportunities or to to help them grasp opportunities that they are discovering for themselves. Doing a lot of recommendation letters these days, a lot of um, uh, blurbs for people's work, um, endorsements, doing everything I can. Make checks payable <laughs> to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. <laughs> Memo, blurb, or recommendation? <laughs> That's the top, man. That's wrong. <laughs> That's so wrong. So uh, doing everything I can to open opportunities for others I, people did that for me a long ago back in the day and i need to do that for others now so this is an example of the kind of quality recommendation you can expect from david gushy <laughs> in recommending me to the church where i currently serve you told the search committee that i am the most caffeinated individual that you've ever worked with <laughs> Have they found that to be true, Jeremy? They have. I've affected their coffee budget. <laughs> anyway, back to the address. You've got your three main effects of racism on the evangelical tradition. And you say that they are moral debasement, religious powerlessness, and perceptual blindness. I'd like to know why those, how you got to them, and if you think one of them is the chief among them, I, I've got an opinion. I've got a thought on that. What's your thought, Jeremy? I think it's perceptual blindness. I think if you pull that brick from the Jenga tower of white evangelicalism, that the whole thing falls down. White people love Jenga. It's just true. Um, perceptual blindness is very, very powerful. Uh, I'm not sure at this point what is cause and what is effect. Um, still working on it. I think analytically trying to understand racism in the American historical and contemporary context, it's never done. I mean, there's always more to learn. There's always more nuances to it. There's always more, um, always more dimensions to it. Um, 
what I, methodologically, what I tried to do was to work inductively. I didn't start off with categories. I started off with novels. Mm-hmm. Just read novels for a long time. Lots and lots of novels. And then when it was time to write, I tried to synthesize from the novels what were the themes. Because I was asking the novels a specific question. I did say in my address, it's not even the most important question to ask these novels. The question I was asking is, when you look at white Christian people, what do you see? And uh, Katie Cannon points out that a womanist uh, perspective sees in the novels uh, testimony to black defiance and endurance and transcendence and resistance. And so it's a story of, of resistance not fundamentally or only about the oppression, but the resistance is to the oppression. So mm-hmm. so when you look at the oppression, what do you see? And I think that, you know, so say I, you go in, I, I go in with this open mind, I'm just going to read these novels and see what they show. And they showed those three themes to me. It was obvious it wasn't hard. Um, under the moral debasement, I should probably mention, I identified what was originally seven deadly sins, but I decided to make it six deadly sins, greed, pride, slander, arbitrary use of power, uh, the impossibility of human community, and uh, unchecked anger and violence. Mm-hmm. And there was just dozens of examples I could have given for all of those from the novels. Um, and... Then, even in the order in which I read stuff, I I was mainly in the novels for the most of the research time. Then, towards the end of the research, I began reading, you know, people like Ta-Nehisi Coates and James Baldwin in his his, uh, essayist voice and James Cone and Malcolm X. I read some Malcolm X and, um, you know, uh, Alice Walker, not in her novelist voice and stuff like that. And the themes were just, was like, well, obviously. So the themes that I, that I synthesized out of the novels were then clearly confirmed in one name or another by the prose writers who were analyzing what racism is like mm. in America. So I don't, and I don't think there's going to be anybody challenging me in those categories. The categories are obvious. In fact, in one sense, they're so obvious that the real issue is... Why did it take me so long to know it? So I developed a curriculum a few years back that I'm retooling into a family workshop called Help! I'm a polite racist. And in that, I go straight for perceptual blindness. But I've got a uh, a question about that and the religious powerlessness, the impotence of white supremacist Christianity. And uh, my question is, Is it by seeing Jesus that our sight will be restored, or is it by curing our perceptual blindness that we'll be able to finally see Jesus and discover the heart of our faith? Um, I would say, let's live in that question for just a second. Um, The original label that that I gave for what these novels see in white religion, the original label was impotent idolatry. 
And I did use the language of idolatry a couple of times mm-hmm. in the address. Um, I was told to, by some readers, watch out for that because it's a, it's a very, I mean, just like um, idolatry is a term that Christians have often used to to diminish non-Christian religions. And so in an AAR setting, you have to be aware of that. But impotent idolatry summarizes it up pretty you know, pretty well. Um, it's something I've been dealing with from the very beginning of my career. Why is it that the grandeur, the power, the authority of Jesus and his teachings, his person, his example, doesn't nearly often enough affect Christian behavior? Um, my first book was on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. And the main headline of that book is that most did not, but a small number did. Mm-hmm. And some of them were motivated deeply by Jesus, by their faith. Um, so you got Jesus in his, the clarity and, and command and, and, and demand of his teaching and the love ethic of love your neighbor with everything, love your, love your God with everything. Um, and then you've got this thing called Christianity, which people claim an affiliation with Jesus that may or may not actually be operationalized in anything real in their lives. And, and a lot of, uh, actually a lot of what Glenn Stassen's late work was about was kind of why does that happen? We write whole books and do long sermon series on why you don't have to listen to Jesus why Jesus is too idealistic, or why the Sermon on the Mount is metaphorical or allegorical, while Leviticus and Revelation ought to be read literally. Yeah, so I end up saying in the address, you know, basically, and I think race is a big part of it, at least in the American setting, we had to construct white people, white Southerners who were owning slaves in particular and beyond, had to construct a version of Christianity that did not allow us to be too directly challenged by Jesus so that we could live with ourselves. Mm-hmm. We, we had to denude Jesus of his power or to direct our attention in other ways. Um, we had to anesthetize and narcotize ourselves so that we could think that we were doing fine with Jesus while also being abject and open racist. And um, so we made a version of Christianity to make that possible. One of the quotes that you used in the address comes to mind. A character in one of the books says something like, Don't think that I love you people. I hate you and I want you to die. But I'm giving you this water because I love Jesus. Yeah. People gasped at that at that line in the speech. The... the um. I hope that the when the YouTube version of the speech is out there, that audience reaction will be um, audible mm-hmm. because there were some gas at some of the quotes because of how bracing they were. So and in a book that I know that I'm going to write that is going to expand this project, um, I will spend much more time thinking about what went wrong with white Christianity in America and 
what, if anything, can be done to fix it. Um, I'm much less optimistic than I used to be. But meanwhile, you got to keep doing the work. But for the longest time, I've said, well, there's different versions of Christianity, and some of them are better than others in leading people to actually follow Jesus. Um, but I, I'm actually now, I would be more, more faithfully reflect what I think now to say there's different versions of Christianity, and some of them are, frankly, the negation of the way of Jesus. They are a net negative. They lead people away from Jesus in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that is disastrous. It's interesting. Um, black theologians and, and observers, including Malcolm X, actually, were saying and have been saying for a long time that is exactly how they experienced white Christianity most of the time, as a living negation of the way of Jesus. And but we've not been able to take on board the radicalism of that critique because it is it is breathtakingly radical until you actually study the evidence and see why somebody could ever possibly say that. I say in my, in my speech, I think uh, it was in some notes that I scrawled in that will end up in the final version, even more than what you have there. Um, um, I say the accusations about white Christianity in these novels and then in thinkers like James Cone and Malcolm X and, and, and so on would once have seemed hopelessly radical to me, but now they just seem accurate. So the level of repentance and conviction and change that is required is... Um, it's as basic as it gets. It's, uh, and you know, it's, uh, I'm not hopeful, but, but I do know that there are plenty of people who at one level or another see it and are hungry for a way, a way ahead. Uh, you know, a lot of the people who seem to camp out on the first few rows at that speech the other night, AAR address, were white, disaffected ex-evangelicals. Mm. And their name is Legion. And a lot of them are become academics. And they, are, they were on those first few rows, and they are hungry to know what in the world do we do now. So can you answer their question? What do we do now? What's next for the church, for the academy? Well, um, for the academy... White scholars need to get out of our own ghettos. And um, I know different people are doing different things. You, I mean, if you're doing third century church history, you're probably not going to be reading the novels of Zora Neale Hurston as part of your research. I get that. But, but we need to be asking how can we be taking, um, taking our work in directions that enable us to move towards justice and reconciliation on the race front. And, you know, there's gender dimensions here, too, that I mentioned briefly in my address. Mm -hmm. But 
But anyway, race right now is what I'm talking about. And um, so for every classroom professor, this all white curriculum stuff got to go. You know, you just can't do that anymore in any setting. And it still happens a lot. Um, so in how we teach and in how we do research, we have obligations. But you have to, you know, there's kind of the way academics kind of like, you know, well, I guess I need to do that. There's that grudging, you know, kind of approach versus, well, as I said in the speech, the conviction of sin. You live in the opposite direction once you realize you've been wrong. And um, so that's what we need to do. The church, well, I'm envisioning now coming out of this meeting and some conversations with a publisher, I'm envisioning a kind of a what do we do now book that would be a kind of a manifesto for post-white evangelicalism in America that would ask that question and think comprehensively about it. Um, and so I think I think that that, together with a, a continued deep dive on, on race, is where my research agenda is going. The, the book on where do white evangelicals go next, or ex-evangelicals, I think it is likely to be more of an essay, collection of essays, you know, that mm -hmm. it's not so much a research book as it is a reflection. You know, it's one thing I'm, I think people are, people are now interested in kind of the trajectory that I'm on. And it, it kind of began with changing our mind and then went to still Christian. And now the speech and kind of the what's next. So this, this is, these two things are what's next for me. Um, comprehensively thinking about where do disaffected ex-evangelicals go and then continue to do the research on race to deal with race. I wonder if it could be called something like a liberation theology for white Christians. Um, how do we liberate ourselves in partnership with, with people of color from the version of Christianity so corrupted by racism? And uh, what would that look like? So that's kind of the big book that's out there, I think. I hope so. Um, meanwhile, I'm, I'm back on social media um, because I have an obligation to leverage whatever platform I have to speak up for what's right. So sounds like there's good things ahead. The weary days of resignation, despair, and hopelessness are giving way to a renewed sense of, as long as I have breath, trying to speak for the marginalized and speak up for what is right. So, which is what my teachers would have would have expected of me and would have required of me um, if they were still around uh, to hold me accountable. So. I am trying to be that person that I was trained to be. Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall. Welcome back to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. The Kingdom Ethics Podcast is a production of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercy University, where the world's hardest problems meet faith's deepest values. 
So what you're listening to is a special three-part series, a conversation broken up into three parts that David and I had a few weeks ago discussing the American Academy of Religion, the state of the Evangelical Church, and his presidential address at AAR 2018, where he talked about race in the effects of racism on the white evangelical tradition. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation so far. We're glad you're here. Welcome to Kingdom Ethics.